All right, we have uh, found a way to take what was originally in, in the idea stage, a four-week series on Scripture, and now we're at week seven. And uh, it's not a bad thing. Um, but I'll be honest, in, in, in tonight will be our last night on this portion, and we'll move to another, a, a new, a new uh, topic, new aspect of worldview next week. Um, but I debated somewhat whether or not to go where we're going to go tonight, uh, partially because we've, we've done a lot of weeks, and, and this can be maybe a little bit historical or academic, but the more I thought on it, prayed on it, talked about it, the more I think it's, it's vitally necessary. And so I want to be clear, the aim tonight is not to... Um, it's not to encourage anyone to become a quasi-academic. It's not to try to make you feel like in order to be a great student of the Word, you've got to also become this biblical grammarian linguist. Um, it's not that, uh, but it is to give you practical tools to stand on as far as it relates to our English Bibles. Last week, we, we asked the question, how did we get the Bible because there was a process of the church recognizing, not, uh, not choosing, but recognizing what writings were the actual inspired and errant authoritative sufficient word of God. And, and, and most of them were never in question and the church early on recognized them, but for a variety of factors, there was not an official decree until you get to the fourth century. And we, we looked at that. Well, the question really tonight is, is twofold. How do we get our Bible, our English Bible? And two, then what do we do with the fact that it, in, in English Bible world, there are dozens of translations? How do, you, how do you discern that? How do you walk through that? And let me tell you why this matters. One, just think about this for a second. There are, this is the best I could find uh, on current stats uh, through, through Wycliffe Bible translators. There are currently 7,000 spoken or signed languages in the world. 7,000. Out of that, only 700, slightly more than 700, have the entire Bible translated in their heart language. 1,600 have the full New Testament and, and portions of the Bible in their heart language. 2,200 languages are currently being worked on, and there are another 1,800 languages that have not even been started, which means there are 1.5 billion people in the world without a single word of Scripture in their heart tongue. And for you and I as English speakers, we have had the blessing of having the Word of God in our language for over 500 years. And I say that to say where well, there needs to be an attitude of gratitude for all of us at the fact that regardless, unless your translation is a heresy translation, which I don't think anybody has one of those. There are those though. But if you've got a quality English Bible in your hand, understand the miracle and gift of grace that is for the fact that you have access to that. Because the majority of the world does not and has not. So on one hand, understand it matters because we are blessed and we should be thankful for it. It also matters because of this. What goes on, so if, if you, and it, what we've referenced, I've referenced several times historically, you have in the mid-1800s this group of scholars that start in Germany and expand throughout the continent of Europe. Eventually they hit in England, England in the latter half of the 1800s. Then they come, their literature gets strong and, and engrossed in the, the northeast in the early 20th century, the Midwest a little bit later, and then makes its way down to the southern part of the United States for sure by the middle of the 20th century, the 50s and the 60s. And this is Protestant liberalism. It's this philosophy where 
uh, naturalism is guiding these theologians. They're seeing all these quote-unquote some real, not real scientific discoveries. They are questioning now the authorship, the inerrancy of Scripture. They, many of them think they are saving. And, and all this sounds real removed like, well, it's like a bunch of academic mumbo-jumbo. And for one sense it is, but here's how it goes down. Some really smart academic elites talk academic mumbo-jumbo. They write their ideas down and other academic elites like it. And it takes long enough till enough academic elites like it that they start teaching it to their students. And it takes enough time then for those students to grab into it and become the second generation of professors and the first generation of pastors. And then those pastors and those professors begin teaching those things. That was the process of what happened in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, if you, and, and, and all of that history. Here's why this matters, because those things still exist in mass. And those academics and those pastors are the people who form translation committees that translate and then update old translations of the Bibles you and I have. And there are constantly more translations coming out all the time or what's being called translation. Let me give you one example. Has anybody heard of the Passion Translation of the Bible? By chance? Bethany has, yeah, we know it because of college students. Now, Passion Translation is not the same thing as the Passion Bible, which is the Passion College Conference. And they, I think it's like an ESV translation, but they've done all these cutesy-wootsy passion things to it in notes and margins. Different thing. This is the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation was done by a single author. It's flag number one. Your Bibles are translated by committees. There may be 40, 50, 60 committee members fact-checking and working and approving. Single author, a guy by the name of Brian Simmons, whose, whose theology, we won't unpack it tonight, but he's part of the New Apostolic Reformation theology, which is very questionable and heretical. So he rewrites the Bible now I say rewrite because it doesn't even qualify as a paraphrase. This is out of the Passion Translations website. Listen to what they say. The meaning of a passage, so when translating, the meaning of a passage took priority over the form of the original words. Sometimes in order to communicate the correct intended meaning, words needed to be changed. Now that sounds super alarming and on one hand it is. On the other hand, also understand there are in scripture certain Hebrew idioms that you and I would hear and go, what? It's kind of like there's a Russian proverb that says, and you hear it and go, huh? But if you and I were Hebrew, we would get it, but you and I might have to, have to how does, what would the correct correspondence be in English? Here's where it gets really bad though. The Passion Translation is more in favor of prioritizing God's original message over the word's literal meaning. Wait a minute. So God had an original message that's not accurately reflected through the word's literal meaning that he used the authors to pen to paper. We've now created all of a sudden two different sources of authority. Uh, in this Bible, um, in this Bible, listen, many of you will heard in most of your translation will be pretty similar to this. Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. In the Passion Translation, no promise of God is empty of power, for with God there is no such thing as impossibility. Here's Galatians 2. I want you to listen. My, this is a New American Standard. It's what I use. It's what I preach each week. New American Standard 95. I only specify 95 because a year ago they gave out with a 2020 version, and it is a little different, and that's not the one I use. Uh, New American 95. Listen to Galatians 2, verse 
Uh, Verse 15, for we are Jews by nature and not sinners among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners in Christ, is Christ a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's Galatians 2, 15 through 21 in New American Standard. And honestly, uh, if you have an English Standard or a Christian Standard or a Holman Standard or even a New King James or King James, there's going to be a lot of similarity. Listen to, I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time, but let me read you how it's quote-unquote translated in the Passion Translation. Although we're Jews by birth and not non-Jewish sinners, we know full well that we don't receive God's perfect righteousness as a reward for keeping the law, but by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. His faithfulness, not ours, has saved us. We have received God's perfect righteousness. Now we know that God accepts no one by the keeping of religious laws, but by the gift of grace. If we are those who desire to be saved from our sins through our union with Christ, does that mean Christ promotes sins if we still acknowledge we are sinners? How absurd. For if I start over and reconstruct the old religious system that I have torn down with the message of grace, I will appear to be one who turns his back on the truth. It was when I tried to obey the law that I was condemned with a curse because I'm not able to fulfill every single detail of it. But because Christ lives in me, I've now died to the law's dominion over me so that I can live for God in heaven's freedom. My old identity has been crucified with Christ and no longer lives for the nails of his cross crucified me with him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine for Christ lives his life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much he gave himself for me and dispenses his life into me. So that is why I don't view God's grace as something minor or peripheral. For if keeping the law could release God's righteousness to us, the anointed one would have died for nothing. Now obviously you can tell vastly different in what it sounds like and reads like. Not only that, but I realize this is tougher to catch when, we're, when, I, when one person's reading and you're having to listen. But the entire third paragraph I read is not a translation of anything in scripture. It's what he added. It's not a translation. It's not a paraphrase. It's what he added. It's not a rewording. It's not a reinterpretation. It's his own thought. This is what the publishers claim. This section of Paul's letter in the Passion Bible reads as if he wrote it today. So now you're determining what the Holy Spirit would have told Paul to write it if he wrote it today. Now you say, wow, I've never heard it, right? One person, two of us in the room have heard of this translation. Yeah, but your grandkids in college have heard of it. And your kids who are gonna go to college and get exposed to what Christianity is or isn't in college are gonna hear about it. I've got family members that asked for it for Christmas. Not only that, but in there, we've added to scripture, it violates a command, but we've not necessarily said something grossly heretical understand that there are translations that translate things grossly heretical. And that is part of what I am watching, especially with our young people, 
where now there are arguments, well, we've translated this from the original language. Well, that may mean you pulled your Greek and Hebrew out, but that doesn't mean you were faithful to it. And all of a sudden now we're coming up with translations that justify God as a woman or God as not all-knowing and all-powerful or justify a sexual lifestyle of one's choice rather than conformity with God's standards. So why does this matter? That's why it matters. Because when false truth corrupts translation, you end up with a corrupted word of God. So, on that serious note, let's backtrack, do a quick history lesson, then we'll talk translations. Where do we get our English Bibles? On your cheat sheet, you'll see a couple names. The first of those is Jerome. Jerome was commissioned uh, by Damasius, the Bishop of Rome, to make a revision of the Latin Bible. Jerome was a scholar of his day. He was uh, well-versed in Greek and Latin. And remember, Latin, by this point, Latin is the predominant language of the Roman Empire. It's the common tongue. We've moved out of the first century New Testament era where Greek, Koine Greek is the common tongue. Now Latin is the common tongue. So we need a new Latin Bible. We need a new translation. He learned some Hebrew from a Jewish rabbi and he begins translating the Old Testament. Uh, prior to that, he will, uh, he will actually go and move to Bethlehem where he will both have access to, uh, to documents we do not have access to today, but documents that would have been uh, very accurate in, in helping him translate from the original Hebrew documents. Uh, and he also perfects his knowledge of Hebrew living there in Bethlehem. And all this to say, what he does that's unique is prior to him, all of the Latin translations of scripture, the Old Testament was translated based on the Greek Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Hebrew. If you ever see in your Bible the LXX, that's the shorthand for Septuagint. Everyone's been, all of them have translated. He is the first now to translate from the Hebrew. Remember our statement about inerrancy, only the original manuscripts are without her. So we want a translation based on original manuscripts on the Hebrew, not on the Greek version of the Hebrew. Now just for clarification, Old Testament in Hebrew Parts in Aramaic, New Testament is in Greek. Because, the New, because they're written at different times, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that's the Septuagint. So that translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew, the New Testament was translated from uh, prior Latin documents, not, uh, not full Greek documents. That work is what would be called the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church for centuries to come. By the way, going back to last week, Jerome vehemently opposed the apocryphal books, but under pressure from all the political people around him, he did some uh, sketchy translations and let them go in there, and that's why, why those are still in there to this day. So that's Jerome. The big deal is he translates the Old Testament from the Hebrew into Latin, the Vulgate, becomes the Vulgate. In, 15, in the early 1500s, you have Erasmus, Erasmus picks up on uh, the, the movement of his, of his day the, in the, uh, the Renaissance to go back to the ancient texts, which what does that mean for scripture? I don't want to read the many, many Latin translations. Give me the Greek. Give me what the New Testament was written in. And, and the key with Erasmus is Erasmus begins the process and he becomes the first to publish the full Greek New Testament in what you and I would think of as a, as a book, as a Bible. 
And that, that Greek New Testament is going to be the basis for all of the, uh, the major translations that come after it. Uh, he will continue to, uh, to update and improve and, and correct the Greek text as he has access to more manuscripts. And the more he did it, the problem became the more the Roman Catholic doctrines based on corrupted Latin couldn't be, couldn't be accepted anymore. So that's where friction became uh, even before Martin Luther with the Greek New Testament. You have Martin Luther step on the scene and when Martin Luther realizes he's done being a Roman Catholic, he looks at his church in Wittenberg, German, in, in German church, and he realizes we need a Bible, because remember this, Roman Catholic church, you and I may be German, you and I may be French, you and I may be Dutch, we don't speak Latin, but when we go to church, that's all we hear. Man, how unbelievably boring to hear a sermon every week in a language you don't speak, to have a Bible you can't read. And so Martin Luther goes, we're going to fix this. We're going to translate a German, a German Bible. And his German Bible is not going to be based on the Latin Vulgate, but he's going to base it on the Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament and on the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. He's gonna use heavily from Erasmus. He's gonna print this into the masses and this starts the product, not just of the German Bible being in the common tongue, but it now starts the Swiss to translate in their common tongue and it starts the English to translate in their common tongue. In fact, the, the table back there, in case you didn't catch it, uh, we do have a regular layperson lover of translation and Colin Busby, and he's got all sorts of facsimiles back there, and there is a Luther, uh, Luther Bible back there. You can look through as a facsimile and see what we're talking about there. The Bible in English really starts in, uh, with John Wycliffe in the, uh, the 1300s. Now, here's the key. He's going to make the first translation of the Bible into English, but his translation, because he's prior to Erasmus, is going to be based on the Latin Vulgate. And even then you go, well, what's the problem with the Vulgate? The Vulgate's translation was based on the Hebrew. Well, because you're not, you're right, and that's good for Latin. That means the Latin Vulgate Old Testament originally was based on good Hebrew. But you don't want to go from Hebrew to Latin to English. You want to go from Hebrew to English. Because you may, things may not, you, you get lost in translation there. So that's in the 1300s. Then you have uh, William Tyndale. William Tyndale desires to make an English Bible that any Englishman can read, and he's got two things going for him. There's Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and the printing press is now around. Uh, Tyndale's a gifted linguist. He knows Greek, Hebrew, Latin, German, Italian, French, and Dutch, and makes all of us look like we've done nothing with our lives. <clears throat> so he begins, he's forced into exile. He begins to translate from the Hebrew and Greek, he prints his New Testament in 1526, and if I remember right, uh, um, the head of the English church, or the, or the head, the, the head of the, the local English churches there, was so angry at this translation, he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep people from reading it, and he bought every copy he could, which means that Tyndale had even more money to go make an even better translation and put it out for more people to buy, and it's pretty funny. Uh, and so he continues to translate. He translates the New Testament, revises it, revises it once, uh, revises it there. He also translates the first five books of, and prints, translate and prints the first five books of the Pentateuch. Uh, ultimately, Tyndale's life is cut short. Uh, he is betrayed by a friend, charged with heresy, and then they strangle him and burn his body at the stake. In fact, his last words would be, Lord, open. 
open the eyes of the king. And I understand his major reality is it's his translation becomes the basis for all the subsequent English translations that come uh, until the mid to late 20th century. I mean, that's how influential the work he does. And so we've, we've, I think Tyndale, uh, we've got a Tyndale Bible back there. Miles Coverdale was his assistant. Uh, he finishes translating the rest of the Bible into the English language using Tyndale's New Testament and Old Testament portions with several other translators. You have the Matthews Bible two years later. Thomas Matthew uh, was a pen name of John Rogers. He was also an assistant to Tyndale. He takes the, the Tyndale Coverdale Bible and he has his own reversions. This was actually licensed by Henry VIII. Um, you've got the Geneva Bible, which was produced during the reign of Mary Tudor. This happens when a lot of uh, Protestant Englishmen are mar martyred. Uh, others escape to the continent. When they get there, they make their way to Geneva, where John Calvin's reform is taking place, and they begin to work on and produce an English version of the Bible that would meet their needs. The, the Geneva Bible is the Bible of the Puritans. That's significant for us in America. The Bible of the Pilgrims was the Geneva Bible. That was their translation. That's what they were using. Uh, it was not popular with the English clergy, the, the Church of England. Um, and so all this builds down ultimately to the King James Version. Uh, the Puritans give the millenary uh, position, uh, petition list of grievances in that uh, James the first king does not have any desire to implement them, but there was something they could all agree on. We need an authorized Bible. So a committee was organized. There were six companies assigned. There were 54 men uh, only four, but only 47 did the actual work. The Tyndale served as the basis along with the Geneva Bible and Matthews and Coverdells. Um, and, and so the King James Version, though never actually officially authorized, gains a foothold because one, the people who did it were quality linguist scholars and reviewers. And, and there was a, a, a level of authority to it. It was a, basically a national effort that had the king's backing. Um, it had the availability and accessibility of, because it did have government backing, to not be under persecution and have access to all of the documents, the best of the best, to be able to make a quality translation on. Uh, there was uh, a, a spirit of, uh, there was a, a religious enthusiasm and, and unity to the translators. Uh, there was an organized system of work to where the work is, is really unified and reads well. Uh, not only that, but there is... Um, because of the late 16th, early 17th centuries in terms of language, uh, the King James Bible is written really at the apex of the English language, which is why still to this day, when you read a King James Bible, it just is beautiful in how it reads. And, and by far, uh, far easier to remember that. And the King James Bible would, in the mid, by the mid 1700s, take, really take the, the crown for the English Bible that people use. Now you get to the late 1800s, uh, the English Revised Bible comes up, um, and they, they begin to work and, and create a new, new version. They, uh, they had an agreement because it was heavily English sounding uh, that the Americans had to wait 20 years before coming out with an American revision. So in 1901, the American Standard Version, not the New American Standard Bible, but the American Standard Version comes out. It's a very accurate, but because it has, it has uh, sought to be very word for word and language has changed. It lacks the beauty of the, the King James. Significant is this gonna change language from Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit. Um, it's gonna replace uh, Lord with Jehovah. Uh, you're gonna have in the mid 20th century, the revised standard version who seek to update the American standard version, but into the elegance of the King James. 
Uh, it's a pretty good translation, but it lost a lot of support because it translates Isaiah 7:14, speaking about the prophecy of Jesus as coming from a young woman rather than coming from a virgin. And obviously that's in the crux of when Protestant liberalism is hitting America, and so it's not as widely accepted. Uh, the Living Bible is a paraphrase based on the American Standard Version. Uh, the Good News, or today's English version, is a free paraphrase based on the Greek text. It tries to read as a modern newspaper. In the 60s, you have the New American Standard Bible. It's three goals, accuracy, clarity, and adequate notes to show, tell you why translators made the decisions they did. To this day, the New American Standard Bible is considered, and I say to this day, to this day, based on the 95 version, the 2020 version, I don't know enough about it yet because it's brand new and fresh and it hadn't been out long enough. But the 95 version is regarded as the most word-for-word -word literal of the, our English translations. In the mid-70s, you have the NIV, the New International Version. Their goals are clarity and accuracy, but it introduces a new idea of what will be called dynamic equivalence, which is we don't want to translate word-for-word. -word, we want to translate more idea-to-idea, phrase-to-phrase, so that it's, it reads uh, clear in English uh, they've revised it in 83 and revised it again in 2011. The 2011 revision is the one that caught a lot of controversy because in, in a lot of places uh, they, they attempted to bring more um, gender neutral language. Um, and uh, so instead of, you know, so it would read instead of Paul saying, dear brothers, it would be dear brothers and sisters. The reality is Paul saying dear brothers meant dear brothers and sisters, but they're trying to do it and uh, so, um, as well as some other changes, if you use the NIV, I think you go with the 83 version, not a 2011 version. Uh, 82, the new King James comes out, seeks to maintain the classic KJV, but bring the English up to date. Uh, the Living Bible comes out in 96, again, translated in 2004. It's based uh, on um, uh, the, the, if you came over to my office and I showed you my Hebrew Bible, and my Greek New Testament, that's what it's based on, those, those versions. Um, but it seeks to be, and I'll tell you more about what dynamic equivalence is here in a minute, but seeks to be more in line with the NIV. Um, the message came out in 2003. It is not considered a translation. It is a paraphrase. It's a paraphrase done by a guy seeking to rewrite things in more of a um, homiletical style for people who do not have a background in Christianity. That's what the message is. 2001, the English Standard Version, the ESV comes out. It seeks to be word for word, transparent English, and it wants to maintain the literary qualities of the Bible. So the artistry and, po and poetry, the meter, the subtlety, the multi-layeredness, it wants to do that. And then the, probably the biggest translation that's most recent uh, was the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which has now been updated and called the Christian Standard Bible. That was through Lifeway. And it, it is uh, based on a, a new form of translation theory called optimal equivalence, which is designed to be a halfway approach between formal and dynamic equivalence. So that tells you kind of what the major ones are. Now you go, what is all that stuff you just said? Great, church family, let me tell you. <laughs> so when you have your Bible, your Bible, whatever translation you've got, there was a group of translators. There was a committee that came together that worked from, uh, it, it worked from manuscripts under certain um, guiding principles to translate your and I's bio, your, our Bibles into, uh, into English. And if you want to know more about that, you can read the section of your Bible most of you probably never thought to read, which is called the preface. 
And in the preface of your Bible, you will find, and I've got my New American Standard and I've got my Christian Standard, both of them will tell you what the aim. So listen to New American Standard. Here's the fourfold aim of the text, of, of the translation. It shall be true to the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It will be grammatically correct, it will be understandable, and it will give the Lord Jesus Christ his proper place, the place which the word gives him. Therefore, no work will ever be personalized. And then it goes through and talks about how it's tried to use modern English. It's, it talks about the version of the Hebrew text it used. It talks about Hebrew tenses. A lot of stuff, if you're not a grammarian, you may not care, but some things that are there. It talks about, uh, you know, in the, in the proper name of God in the Old Testament. It tells you things uh, things in there, like in the New American Standard Bible, if you see something italicized, you're reading a verse and it's got an italicized word. That word is a word that is not literally there in the Greek or Hebrew, but is implied. And in the effort of transparency, they have italicized it because it's necessary to make proper sense in English. And it is a word implied. What I mean by implied is, um, instead of saying, I am at, or I am worshiping, the verb worshiping was used and I am was implied. So I, I'm trying to give you an easy example off the top. This is all stuff in there. Um, if you see in the New, New American Standard a passage where all of a sudden in the New Testament, everything is a smaller case but all capitalized, that's to tell you it's quoting from the Old Testament. And that's how you know what that is. If you see an asterisk, anyways, all of those things are in your preface. In any Bible, it's in your preface. You can get what was, the, what was the aim, how did they do it, who was involved. There's fascinating things there. For instance, I used, uh, I've used the New American Standard Bible since I was in third grade. The lone exception was when I went to college uh, and, a, and maybe a year out of college, I primarily used the English Standard Version. And one day I was reading through a passage in the English Standard Version and I noticed this verse that I read it translated a certain word in a way that made it sound very fatalistic. These, these vessels were prepared as if, basically it made it sound like God prepped these people for the purpose of being thrown out. And I began to go, that's just, wow, that kind of, so I began to dig into what that word is in the Greek and I began to look, at this point I was in seminary and I, and I had had some Greek training and I began to look in and I realized that that word has a range of meanings and for whatever reason, the translators picked the meaning that is the most extreme to this side. That there's debate on in context. If the context says it should be this extreme, by all means, we need to translate it that extreme. But there was room there. Well, well, when I went into the preface of the ESV, I discovered the entire translation committee of the ESV are all reformed and therefore Calvinist in their, so, their soteriology, their view of salvation. Well, that makes sense why then they would come in and train. They didn't translate it wrong. They just made a decision in the translation, no different than when I prepare to preach every week. I'm prepping from the Greek. And I have to make decisions in light of what is the words, how do they react, what are there in order to say. Now, not decisions like I'm changing the meaning, but that's part of the process. So all of that's in the preface of your Bible. So read your preface sometime. And if you go, none of it made sense, Pastor, great. Come to the office, we'll talk about it. I hope it makes sense. Unless it doesn't make sense to me, and then we'll call, we'll call the seminary. Uh, I got connections. Um, okay, there's three basic, three basic uh, theories of translation into the English language. They're on your cheat sheet. Formal, 
Well, I think I put four, but, but there's three as far as translation. Formal, optimal, dynamic. For a long time, formal has been the historical treatment of how we want to translate. Formal meaning we want a literal word-for-word uh, word translation. We want to reproduce the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Aramaic. We want to reproduce it as close as possible, mirror image, word-for-word, word, into the English language. And this would even include in some places a very strict view that the syntax and even the word order is as close as possible. Now what I mean by that is understand how you and I construct English sentences, Greek doesn't operate by the same rules. So if I were to read you the word order of things in Greek, you might go, that doesn't sound, that sounds the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Well, yeah, because it's Koine Greek of the first century, different grammar rules. So that would be a hard, a, a formal equivalence. And you can see uh, examples of, of what translations strive to be formal equivalents. The idea here is we want the original text to dictate what the sound is in the, new, in, in the language we're translating into. There is dynamic equivalence. The idea is instead of if, if formal is word for word and literal, this is functional and thought for thought. The idea is to translate, take the original language, and when the original language sounds, even translated word for word, sounds strange in the English language, let's, let's make sure we keep the words, let's make sure we keep the phrase to be the same meaning, but let's change the words and maybe word order to make it read a little bit smoother in English. Um, is what we do here. This would be this would be the NIV was the one that first espoused this New Living Translation. Are there? Uh, so the goal in translation is not to be identical with the form, the word for word, the literal, but it's to carry in carry over the meaning, the thought, the point. Then there's optimal. Optimal was a new idea with the Holman Christian, where the idea is wherever we can, let's be as literal word for word as possible. But where being word for word literally translated into English would actually confuse you and lead you to a different conclusion than what it should, let's go the dynamic route and help clarify and do that. And then there's paraphrase, which obviously a paraphrase is a paraphrase. It's, it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase of what is there. So in all these translations, you've got some common ground. We want to advance the gospel. We want clarity on, uh, on what's there. But you do have different approaches. Text-oriented approach, so New American Standard, ESV, King James, New King James. You've got reader-oriented approaches, which would be the NIV, the NLT, or you've got that in between, which would be the Christian Standard Bible. Um, and you've got different goals in there. The, the, a, a Bible like the NIV is trying to make as its goal, we don't want that person who's never grown up in church, who doesn't know the churchy language, who, who doesn't know some of the, the more formal English, we don't want that person to pick up a Bible and go, this is some dusty handbook that I don't get. That's at the heart behind with things like the NIV. At the heart behind things like the NASB is, hey, we, we were given the word of God and we wanna be true to what that word says. And if that means we gotta bump up our understanding and then we need to grow our minds and bump up our understanding and be loyal, loyal to it. One is looking at the reader today. One is looking at what is the original text saying? You'll see examples of this in a New American Standard Bible. They're gonna use the word propitiation 
1 John 4.10, in this, the love of God is manifest. Uh, not that we love God, but he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Off the top of your head, dictionary B style, how many of you know what the word propitiation means? How many of you have no clue what that word means? And don't be ashamed. Okay, which is why if you were to read it in a translation like the NIV, it would say the means of atonement or the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God and set us right. Which ones, that's, that's what you're gonna see in a difference. Allegiance to the original text or allegiance to the modern reader. Some are going to look at the Bible as a modern book, means the Bible needs to kind of fit by our, our, our modern rules. Some are gonna say no, our modern rules need to fit by the Bible rules. Some do not have pure hearts in this process and see the Bible as a deficient book that needs correction versus the Bible as a clear and sufficient book that is there. Uh, and some that fall in the uh, dynamic equivalence categories, you would see translators trying to, well, what Paul's trying to say is, and obviously you can feel the danger of that. Wait a minute, we're trying to now speak for the biblical author, whereas the formal equivalence would say, Paul said exactly what he intended to say, so just translate it. Just, just, just leave it there. Um, a, a dynamic equivalence is going to look more at the phrase. The formal equivalence is going to look at the words, what the words mean, how the words relate to each other, the phrase, and on and on. You're going to find in dynamic equivalent uh, translations a fondness for abstraction. So you're more abstract words. So for instance, uh, whereas you're going to find in a formal equivalence very concrete words. So right, there's this saying in the New Testament, if we walk by, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Now, most of you and I don't say, hey, how you walking lately? <laughs> that sounds really weird, but that's what scripture would say. Hey, how are you living lately? How is life going? How are you acting? How are you? That's what walk means in scripture. It's the idea. So walk is very concrete, very literal, whereas a dynamic, like, a, like an NIV would say, um, would say live. Would be, would, would be more abstract and, and do there. Or, or uh, formal would say, the, word, the, the verse says, finger of God. Whereas the NIV would say, well, what it means is the power of God, which is true. That is what the finger of God means. The arm of the Lord means the power of the Lord. Again, you're seeing what's there. Um, you're gonna see different things. Let me give you some, give you some examples. The NIV would say in Psalm 35, 10, my whole being will exclaim, New American Standard and ESV both say, all my bones will say. Um, Psalm 73, NIV, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. New American Standard, for, their pains are in, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. English Standard, for they have no pangs until death and their bodies are fat and sleek. Uh, NIV, for their, cal their callous hearts comes iniquity, the evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. NASB, their eyes bulge from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. ESV, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. Another example would be uh, he, uh, uh, Ephesians 5, 17 through 21, which I'd love to tell you as pastor that I could tell you by memory what that is. I'm pretty sure that's where Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and wives submit to your husbands. I believe that is the passage, but let me clarify here. That's part of the passage. Uh, no, it's actually the part right before that. So that passage in, in the New American Standard and the Christian Standard and the English Standard, verses 17 through 21 in chapter five are two sentences. 
That is reflective of the fact that in the Greek text, those, those verses are made up of two sentences. In the NIV, where the, the aim is not to be word for word literal, that, tech, that passage is five sentences because they've tried to come in and go there. And so what do you what do, you do with that? Uh, what I want to be clear on is I get, probably everybody has a certain level of allegiance to the translation that you grew up on or started to grow on. I can own that because I use the New American Standard since third grade. I certainly have a fondness for the New American Standard just on a personal level um, and what's there. For some, that's the NIV. For some, that's the King James. For some, that's the New King James. For some, that's, uh, for some of the younger, that's the ESV because the ESV spits out the Bibles with the coolest covers. So, uh, and lots of them. Um, there's a variety of things there. So I just want to be clear. Uh, there are translations that I, I would never use a paraphrase as your primary translation. Um, if it's a non-heretical paraphrase, it can be used as, an, as an, a, a devotional kind of assistant, but not as, it's a paraphrase, it's not a translation. Um, some of your dynamic equivalent translations are in fact problematic. Some are not problematic. I would never want to vilify um, the, the, uh, the NIV. I think the new NIV, the verdict is, is, is still out on, but the NIV wouldn't want to, that's a, a translation that has been very standard in America for a long time. Um, but it's going to have some, it's going to have some pros. It's going to have some cons. Uh, I think if you're going to be really well-rounded, you ought to, it's, it's probably good to have, uh, if you feel like a real formal equivalent Bible is really tough, get a good solid dynamic equivalent Bible, get a good NIV, but also have another translation that's a little more word for word. There's a place for both in your study. I personally lean towards and would prefer every believer to use more of a formal equivalent Bible. That's my personal preference. I want to emphasize that. That's not thus saith God. That is (laughs) thus shareth your pastor. Um, my reason for that is I think people can rise up to a level. I was pretty crazy for me to pick a new American standard as a third grader and, and an old new American standard had all of these and thous in it. But that's the Bible that I began meeting with the Lord daily. And that's the Bible that I, and I didn't, all I knew was our pastor preached from the new American standard because he said it was the most literal. And I was like, well, if it's the most literal, that's the one I want. We can always grow up especially as older believers. And I don't necessarily mean older by physical age, but by spiritual age. Uh, there's a place, especially for a new believer, young believer, it may be better to use. I think, I think the Christian standard is a, great, is a great balance of word for word literal with, with being much uh, maybe smoother in the, in the words that it used and how it reads um, in English. And I know, I know Hebrew scholars that feel like the Christian standard Bible best translates more Hebrew than any other translation. Um, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that. I just know there's scholars who do that. I know really good scholars who feel that way. So what do you do with it? I more want you to tell you what to do. I'll tell you my preference. I'd love everybody to use a formal equivalent translation because I think it will challenge you. It will sharpen you. Um, It'll force you to go look stuff up because I always have a I think there is, I'm not saying it's wrong, 
But there's a fine line that's easy to cross between I'm trying to help someone understand this in words they understand and let me say it how I say it. And when we're talking about the word of God, you don't need what I say or some translator thinks. You need what God wrote. But I also recognize, and there's times, and you'll hear me sometimes from the pulpit, you're reading your, NA, you're reading your New American Standard, and you'll hear me read and go, wait a minute, that's not in there. What did he just do? It means that I realize the vast majority of people may not know what that word is. And since I've already studied from the Greek anyways, let me just, let, let me as I'm preaching, read the word, but also read a couple other words to help make sure anybody in there from the oldest believer in the room to the guy who walked in off the street who doesn't have a clue about what any Christian words are can understand and not miss. Um, so, but I want you to be aware of this because we are in a day and age where there are bad translations. We're in a day and age where there are biased translations. We're in a day and age where you are gonna have to be picky and if not you, your kids, and if not your kids, your grandkids, and if not your grandkids, your great-grandkids. Or in a day and age where translations that read cool and hip, and understand how big this is. I'm young, but I grew up in a day when we, for most of my childhood, did not have internet in our home, and my parents didn't have cell phones. So goodness, Wi-Fi laptops and texting wasn't even on the radar. I grew up in a time where I had to read books and talk to people face to face. When you start moving to some of your kids, your grandkids and your great grandkids, they have grown up in a time where the English language is at such a low point that their ability, and this is not a knock at them, but the world they've grown up in has robbed them of a healthy ability to read and comprehend, which means how does that impact what we translate? which is why a Bible like the Passion Bible, which reads real flowerly and, 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 and emotively, and it's why, and I, and I promise you, Bethany's not in the room, that means Jesse must have gotten hyper. Um, we dealt with a lot of students on Sundays that were sitting there with their Passion Translation following along. So I just, this is why it matters. So I know tonight was a little bit more Again, I don't need you to be an, uh, an academic. I, I, not everyone needs to be a linguist. And I know I didn't cover remotely everything um, that there is to cover. But you need to have a good Bible translation. It's not bad to have a couple Bible translations because there are little differences in some of them. When I prepare weekly, I look at the Greek and I look at the New American Standard and I look at usually the English Standard and the Christian Standard to just see most are very similar, but sometimes you may pick up on something, but you need to have a good translation. You need to know how to spot a good translation. You need to know what the, what the philosophies behind it are. And uh, so that when you read your Bible and it says, thus saith the Lord, you know for sure, thus saith the Lord. We don't have the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. And even if we did, it wouldn't help any of us in the room, but we do have translations in English that are off of what we know to be the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, which is why if you've got a good translation, you can bet your eternity on what it tells you about God because it's God's word that does not fade. So let's pray. Church, uh, Father, thank you so much for how you've protected and preserved your word. Thank you for the fact that, Lord, we only named a couple names. But thank you for the fact that there are men of brilliance like a William Tyndale who were able to translate your word with a conviction in their heart that people like us would be able to read it. And they were willing, Lord, for their life to be ended painfully and early 
so that we could read your word. God, thank you. And Father, may we God, may we be loyal to who you are as you reveal yourself in your word. The world says a lot of things. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. And one day we're going to stand before you and I just wonder how many, how, much of, how many things for each of us, Father. Will you ask, why didn't you just believe what I said? God, and for many, how many of us will get to you and and that sheer instance before joy captures our heart forever and we see the glorious beauty of who you are have a split second of sorrow because you look exactly like you said you'd look, but we don't recognize you because we believe too much else. So God, may we be people who are loyal to your word because we are loyal to you. God, thank you that your word is mighty, it's powerful, it impacts our lives, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus, amen.